This several weeks that I'm in town and not traveling uh, and doing uh, Monday night teaching, I decided to do a series of stories. And last week, part of the teaching was based on this old Arthurian legend about, of Sir Gawain. Um, and this evening is a really ancient story that comes from the Kata Upanishads of India. So it's perhaps several thousand years old. And it's a story about initiation. And initiation is the process for us as human beings in which we go through something usually difficult, in case you haven't yet. <laughs> and your heart grows wiser, stronger, more courageous, more understanding um, through the process. And I remember asking this African medicine man, what does initiation prepare you for? And he smiled and he said, oh, further initiation, right? <laughs> so you also sense it as the process of deepening or learning um, in, a, in a profound and spiritual way. Um, and one of the things that you learn from the process of initiation, and we all have them, you can listen and hear how this resonates with your experience, is you learn trust. You learn that the troubles that you've been given are the right troubles. They're the right ones because they're the ones that you have for this incarnation. Um, and they are, whatever they are, the perfect place to learn what are called the paramitas or the qualities of awakened heart, of patience, compassion, dedication, steadiness, uh, loving kindness, determination, all those qualities that we might see as expressing uh, a wise heart, they come um, quite naturally through your difficulties. In fact, I remember Ajahn Chah, my teacher, saying when people were talking about their spiritual practice or their life, he said, when you reflect back, where did you learn more? You know, in the times that were easy or the times that were tough? And mostly, of course, it was the times that were tough. But there's a caveat to say, some of us are also rather loyal to our suffering. Um, and part of initiation can also be that you allow yourself to have the pleasure of living fully and the joy of life. So it doesn't mean that it has to be a grim duty, um, but in some way that you give yourself fully to life to its whole range. Um, in fact, in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, People pray for troubles. It's one of the standard prayers. Grant that I might given, be given enough difficulties that I really learn compassion and patience and dedication, as if you need to ask for more. Right? <laughs> but with them, as you, if you undertake your difficulties consciously, um, wakefully, mindfully, um, they bless you. Um, and you learn a kind of trust, the trust that is in the line from Pablo Neruda where he says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. That there's something that happens even when it seems like you've come to the end of the road, that if you attend to life, the green shoots want to push themselves through the cracks in the sidewalk and s renew themselves no matter what. Now one of the interesting pieces in the story of um, the myth of the Buddha's awakening, um, most often it's talked about on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment sitting under the Bodhi tree and having these great revelations and then being assailed by the forces of Mara, of the temptations of desire and the armies of Mara of aggression and doubt and so forth, and overcoming all of those and, and becoming awakened in some fashion or other. But there's an earlier piece to that awakening that's um, also very important and important for us as we consider our own initiations. And that is after, in this myth, after the Buddha left 
the palace and the life of luxury to seek some deeper meaning in life and became an ascetic. He did six years of these wild austerities of fasting and sleeping out um, in the heat, uh, in the cold of the night without covering himself or standing out in the bright sunlight and staring at the sun or um, all those kind of wild things that you see in the pictures of Indian yogis doing beds of nails kinds of things. Whatever it was, he tried those things to, to somehow defeat his own desires and to defeat his sense of himself, to go beyond himself. But what happened is that he just got sick and weak. <laughs> and it didn't work all that well because he was struggling against himself. Um, it was off the middle path, so to speak. And then one day, after six years of trying to overcome who he was, to become someone else through all these ascetic practices, and, um, he sat quietly and he had a memory of being seven years old in the plowing ceremony in the spring when his father, the king of that little kingdom, was plowing the field in a ritual way um, uh, uh, outside of the palace. And he, as the young prince, was seated under a rose apple tree. And he remembered feeling contentment and well-being um, and wholeness and a kind of stillness or collectedness of mind that was filled with joy and well-being that didn't come through any effort on his part, but rather was an opening to the natural well-being that we all inherit as part of human consciousness. And he realized, oh, maybe I've been doing the wrong thing. Maybe I've been fighting against myself to awaken rather than trusting that there's a fundamental well-being that I can tune into, that I am part of this natural world and that this well-being will carry me. And so at that point he started to eat again, he'd been fasting and he started to take care of himself. And it was in that moment that he discovered what he called later in teaching the middle path that was neither one of indulgence on one side nor of trying to deny himself on the other. And part of what's beautiful to me is the image of sitting in his father's garden <clears throat> during the plowing season. It's it's an image that is both feminine and masculine, and it has a kind of nature quality to it. And more than anything, it speaks of a, of a well-being that we're born into and that we can lose. <clears throat> and that in some way, initiation and awakening brings us back to. Now, what's also true is that his opening to this sense of well-being came after a lot of ascetic practice. So it's hard to know. Maybe if he just sat, if he left the palace in the high life and said, I'm going to go sit down under a rose apple tree and everything will be fine, maybe it wouldn't have worked, actually. Maybe he had to go through those difficulties first in order to learn that that wasn't quite the way. And so there is this whole um, multi-thousand-year conversation about is awakening sudden or gradual, you know, and in one, in one kind of quip, somebody said, enlightenment is an accident and practice makes you accident prone or something <laughs> like that. That, there's, that there, both of these are true, that in some way you tend to what's true and you open yourself to it. And, and in that way, there's a kind of grace that comes in certain moments where a deeper understanding will come. So... Um, you all will have your ascetic and difficult times, and you'll also have your moments of revelation um, and well-being and the rose apple tree of your own heart and your own life. Now, this particular story of initiation is a story of a young man, so it's a bit more of the male initiation story. And I'll try and thread a little bit more of what might be the feminine initiatory journey, which is a little bit different, but has still many of the same elements. Um, it begins initiation 
with some kind of movement in the heart and in the life that says um, the way things are isn't enough. There must be some way to feel more connected, more loving, more awake, more present, um, more free inside. So that's one way it can begin. And there's a poem from Mary Oliver where she writes, One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, man by life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations through their terrible melancholy. It was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. And so sometimes there's this sense, whether it's in a love relationship or in the work that you do or the creativity or the art or the circumstance you find yourself in, that there's some pull that says, if I, either I have to leave or I have to find something, some thread to follow that's going to take me deeper than the way I'm living. My life is too much on automatic. It's too habitual. Um, and if it doesn't come that way, if you're not pulled in that way, then the other way it happens is through a blow. In Greek, the word is katabas. It means all of a sudden you get home and there's a message on you know, your, your, your phone or whatever, and it's the doctor saying, um, you need to come in and talk about your test results. And all of a sudden you realize your life has changed entirely or you get some message about somebody else that you love and care for and some huge thing has happened. Um, so it can be illness, it can be loss, it can be financial, it can be personal, but something will happen um, that turns your life upside down. And this is part of incarnation, it's part of the human journey. And whether then you are called out of your house, as that poem says, or whether there is some blow or some great wind that sweeps into your life, it will happen. And then the question is, what do you do with that? So the story is about a young man named Nachiketa, who lived a long time ago when you were much younger than you are now. <laughs> and he was born into a relatively wealthy family in India. His father was a rich businessman who had quite a herd of cattle and various other things. But what happened is that his father, who'd had him when he was already an older man, was feeling his age and getting worried about dying and getting concerned about his immortal soul and thinking, what's going to happen when I die? I want to make sure things are covered. So he decided in a way to go into a spiritual phase of his life, all right, he was going to divest himself of his worldly things, but in order to make sure that he had a, a good future after he died, he decided to do a big ritual and give all that he owned to the Brahmin temple. The priests there had been in conversation with him and said this would really give him a good birth the next time. You know how that business works, right? So there he was, and he got together all of his wealth and all the things that he had collected, and he made this huge ritual in the center of the town and brought his cattle and all the things like that and made this great offering. And as he did it, um, 
his son Nachi Ketu was there and he sort of said proudly, I give all this great wealth and all this offerings to the, to the priests and to the temple, you know, for my well-being, my future, and because it's a noble thing to do and on and on. And his son was disgusted by the hypocrisy of it, appalled by the idea that merit and virtue could be purchased in some proud public display in the town square, look at me, and now I'm going to get enlightened or have some future good birth. And you know how young men are anyway, but especially looking at his dad doing this, he knew there was something not quite right about it. And he said, as he listened to his father say, I give all that I value to the temple, he said sort of, you know, under his breath, but loud enough for people to hear all that you value, yeah, what about me, right? And his father was insulted that his son should say anything in the middle of this great ceremony to say something that was kind of derogatory or put him down. And he got really angry and he said, give you, I give you to death, which is like saying drop dead. How dare you do that in public in the middle to, 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 to uh, disgrace your father by saying that. Little father-son thing getting worked out here. <laughs> and Nachiketa, being the way young men are, a young man looking for something more genuine than some outer kind of public display that wasn't really genuine, said, I accept. You give me to death, I accept. It's like the young men who come and say, is there anything dangerous to do around here? You know, sign me up. There's some part of us that actually wants, or young women, that wants to know who we are and test ourselves. So he accepts. And we have all had our moments where we've seen hypocrisy. <clears throat> and in fact, since we're in the political season, <clears throat> all you have to do is turn it on. <clears throat> and you can hardly breathe some of the time because it's full of so much mendacity and um, warping of truth. I mean, even the fact-finding, you know, channels and sites are like overwhelmed by how little fact there is in a lot of what's being put out there. But it's not just that. There's the other kinds of hypocrisy. We, the land of the free in some ways, are trying to suppress votes in other places. Or the land that wants to export democracy except that we really want to support dictators if they're on our side in other parts of the world. Or the, one that w the country that wants to make ourselves and the world safe for everyone. And this year we have had the, the biggest year ever of selling weapons to the rest of the world. We are the largest weapons exporter, hundreds of billions of dollars. We import, you know, all our TV, you know, electronic, smartphones, all the cool stuff that we like by selling killing machines. And then we don't feel so safe. Funny thing about that, you know. Um, so it's just, it's not just Nachiketa. Um, he saw the same kind of hypocrisy that we can see that in the continuing drumbeat of warfare, you know, that the, we have this enormous military, we have to use it for something. Or continuing racism that's here and woven into the culture still in tragic ways. Or the, the, the denial of what we're doing with the climate. He, this is Nachiketa's, the same, same kind of vision. Um, the people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you owned, then they are not your children anymore. They are the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they're the children of money. If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, they're the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they're the children of loneliness. If your fear of truth owns you, they're the children of the fear of truth. So we also, not only do we see hypocrisy around, um, but we bequeath it to our children and to the next generation. And there was this extraordinary thing that happened in the 80s, late 80s, when Gorbachev single-handedly pretty much dismantled the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Izvestia, the main newspaper uh, of the Soviet Empire at that time, 
um, published a headline that canceled the school exams for 53 million children saying that we have lied to two generations of our children about our own history and about communism so that we can no longer look them honestly in the face. And we are canceling our history exams until we can rewrite our history and make it more genuine and truthful. Now America, there are certain ways we could do that as well, but we haven't yet. Um, really. You know, and, and if you want a little heads up, you can read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, which gives a whole alternative voice to what our, how our country and culture evolved that's beautiful and compelling and tragic and all of those things. So here's Nachiketa, but it's also pointing to something for you. It's not just a story about him. It is what do we do in our lives with the injustice or the... Uh, the lack of integrity that we see in the society around us or in the community or in our own lives. And at some point, sometimes we say, I have to respond, I have to do something, I have to live differently. It asks something of us. So Nachiketa said, when his father said, you know, drop dead or I give you to death, Nachiketa says, I accept, um, which is his acceptance of initiation. He wasn't afraid. And we live in a society, somebody called it the airbag society, right? Where we're trying to be secure all the time. And we don't honor the fact that there isn't security. I was in a, a men's retreat leading with my colleague and friend here, Robert Hall. And somebody in the group, this man spoke up, we were talking about some very tender and difficult things, our history, our sexual history, our personal history. So, and, the, and this man said, I don't really feel so safe in this group. And Robert looked at me and said, you're not. <laughs> he said, in fact, we're not safe. You know? And then the question is, how can we hold that reality of insecurity in a wise way, rather than pretending that everything's going to be okay? Because we're not. So this, again, is what Nachiketa is seeing. Um, and... Uh, in part also what the Buddha points to, where he says, it seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. So these are some deep questions. How do we live with integrity when the world around us may not have it so much? Um, how do we live with an immediacy knowing that we don't know how much time we have? So you and Nachiketa are now in this together, right? So what does Nachiketa do? He says, all right, I've been given to death. Um, let me check it out. Um, and Richard Baker Roshi, who was the abbot for a long time of San Francisco Zen Center, he used to say to his Zen students, if you're with someone who's dying, and you're not willing to trade places with them in that very moment, then you're not practicing Zen. It's like really tough Zen, right? Okay. So he went to visit Isan Dorsey, who was one of his Dharma successors, um, when Isan was um, dying of AIDS. And Dick Baker said to him, I wish I could trade places with you right now. And Isan looked up and said, don't worry, you'll get your chance. You know? <laughs> And in that way, we're all in it together. We're all in this mystery that includes birth and death, your death. Um, and we forget about it. But here's Nachiketa saying, all right, let me live and let me face the mystery of the temporality of incarnation. And say, how do I live knowing that this is also true? So what Nachiketa did was he went and he sat out under a tree. One does that in India, I guess, in these stories. And he didn't move for three days and three nights. He just sat determined, focusing his mind on death, said, I'm going to face my death. And it's said that unless you've somehow faced your death, you're not able to live freely. So he sat there. And in a simple way, even when you come to meditate, you learn a little bit how to face your death. Because you're sitting here and you get restless. 
and you could get up and get some tea, but instead you name it if you're practicing and restless. And you say, I hate this restless, I can't. And then you feel the hatred. And I wish this would go away. And then you feel the wishing, you know, and then you think, well, I, I got through that. I did okay. Then you feel the pride. I'm doing all right, you know. <laughs> and then you think, oh, gee, I wonder if I should stop, you know, for pizza on the way home because the mind has absolutely no pride. And they say, oh, no, I'm meditating again. Right? And then all of a sudden you feel your loneliness and you realize, you know, I've been lonely and if you can't sit with your loneliness or your boredom here, then as soon as you go home and you get lonely, what do you do? You open the refrigerator, right? Or you go online or something like that because you can't bear your loneliness or you can't bear your boredom or you can't bear whatever it is that scares you. So there's a way in which coming to meditate means that you face yourself quite directly, as Nachiketa does, sitting under this tree and saying, all right, let me face everything. Now, there he sat for three days and three nights, um, waiting to face death, trying to face death. Um, And uh, in the Zen monasteries, there's a practice called Tangario, if you want to go in to a monastery, they don't just say, oh, welcome, you know, glad to have you come in. You actually have to prove yourself before they let you in. So you have to sit out in the snow, if it's winter, outside the gate for three days. Um, and the monks will kind of look outside and say, yeah, we got another one out there. Let's see how they do. You know, oh, they're still out there, day two. Maybe they're tough enough or, you know, maybe they're sincere enough. We'll let, we'll let him or her in. Um, so that you actually have to show your determination. That's the, again, this is sort of the masculine side, but I remember when my daughter was being born, and my wife, Liana, went into labor. And because Caroline's head wasn't engaged fully, she started to have contractions. And she had contractions for pretty much three days and three nights. And we, an intense contractions, and we'd go in the hospital, and they'd look and say, yeah, you're two and a half centimeters dilated, go home, you know. And they'd go back, okay, you're three centimeters dilated, go home. And we didn't know it was because the head wasn't engaged, but she just, day and night, was going through these intense contractions. And after a while, it's not life or death, it's just surrender. Your, your body takes over and you become, it seemed like, and described me, you become simply one of the mothers of the world as mothers have been over all these thousands and millions of years, giving birth to the next generation. And who you are sort of gets out of the way and there's just this amazing process. Um, so Nachiketa had to look for it, you know. But those of you who've had, who've had childbirth, you didn't have to look for it. It came to you, you know. Um, so there are these different ways that it happens. You all understand. Um, and of course, in the traditional villages, when someone is giving birth, there are these beautiful practices in which they open the doors and the windows and the cabinets and unbraid everyone's hair. Basically, everything gets opened that possibly can be opened as a kind of symbolic uh, attunement with the need for the birthing mother to open herself to this new life. So here's Nachiketa doing what he can do in his descent. And if you want to read a feminine version of this, you can read the, the journey of Inanna which is from Mesopotamia, and it's one of the oldest initiation stories of the descent to the underworld and the female version of it. And after three days and nights um, of sitting there with all the kinds of difficulties that come if you sit still, you don't have to to go to Tibet or India or something to have amazing deep practice. Try it. Try just sitting for three days and see what happens. Anything you ever imagine facing will come to you. It's, it's really kind of extraordinary. It's that close, right? The oldest, most widespread stories in the world are adventure stories about human heroes who venture into the myth countries at the risk of their lives and bring back tales of the world beyond the ordinary. It could be argued that the narrative art itself arose from the need to tell an adventure, that a person risking their life in perilous encounters constitutes the original definition of what's worth talking about. But, goes on Wilhelm Stephenson, the polar explorer, having an adventure also shows that someone is incompetent. 
that something has gone wrong. An adventure is interesting enough in retrospect, especially to the person who didn't have it. At the time it happens, it usually constitutes an exceedingly disagreeable experience. And so this is also an element of initiation. Don't worry, you will have hard times, and they will be hard. In whatever form, they, they, will, they will come to you. So Nachiketa sits for three days and three nights and finds himself all of a sudden in the land of Lord Yama, who is the king of death. And he says, I've come to see Lord Yama, the king of death, who's also known as the great accountant, the keeper of the law. But Lord Yama isn't there, only several of his assistants, pestilence, war, famine, and aging are there. <laughs> and they say, what are you doing here? He says, I'm looking for death. And they say, this is a very unusual young man. <laughs> Most people flee the other way. Um, but Nachiketa understands that it's only by facing our mortality and the limitation of our life that we can find something deeper, something that's more eternal, if you will. So they say death is out, he's collecting rent, he won't be back for several days, and Nachiketa says, I will wait. So he sits for those three days, um, facing his own death, his own fear, his own anxiety, all the things that you face when you actually stop and strip away the distractions of life until you become in the present moment of eternity, which is who you are. Um, more than all the roles and things that you have. And we've all had that at different times in our life, moments like this. And then death arrives. And the assistants say, there's a rather unusual young man here. Instead of running away, he came looking for you. And death then goes to find Nachiketa, introduces himself, I'm Lord Yama. And, uh, he said, I hear you've been looking for me, and Nachiketa said, I've been waiting three days and nights. And Death says, I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting. Very gracious. And he says, and having kept you waiting, since I see you to be a young man of some considerable courage, having kept you waiting for three days and nights, I will grant you three boons, three wishes. You know how these stories go, right? Since I failed to show up on time, and you stayed for these dedicated days, I will give you three wishes. You may choose anything. So here's Nachiketa now, with death as his advisor. That's the phrase from Carlos Castaneda's writing, take death as your advisor each day and think, well, if my life were short, if I only had a day, a week, a month, a year to live, what would I do? Who would I call? What would I say? How would I live? Life becomes really different when you take death as an advisor. And so here's Nachiketa using death as his advisor. As you might say, well, what really matters now? I get three wishes. So the first wish from Nachiketa, which is a wish that allows us to go through an initiation, he said, I ask for forgiveness. May my father see me now as he did the day I was born when he saw his new son. And there was something really wise in Nachiketa's request starting with forgiveness. Really, it's the heart of healing. Um, I used the phrase loving awareness when we started our meditation this evening, as you recall, because it turns out that the only way that the psyche, the heart, the body, and the spirit open or reveal themselves is when our awareness is wed to love. Otherwise, it can be the, kind of mixed up with judgment or duty or whatever. It's like... Um, Florida Scott Maxwell, the author whose quote I like to use, no matter how old a mother is, she looks at her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. You know, that's, that creeps into the meditation or your spiritual life as some self-improvement game. And it's not about that. 
It's about seeing the mystery of your life with a, with a loving heart. And to do it requires forgiveness. Forgiveness means that we can see all the things that are imperfect and messy and the ways that people have hurt us and the way we've hurt others and the way we've hurt ourselves and all of these things and say, I forgive. And forgive doesn't mean that you condone it. You may say, I'll never let this happen again. I'll do everything I can to prevent such harm from happening again. It's just not carrying hatred in your heart any longer. It's not putting anyone out of your heart, including yourself. And the thing is that it's possible. If it weren't, we would be lost as human beings. But even though it's tough, the Hutus and the Tutsis and what the genocide in Rwanda or the Northern Irish Protestants and Catholics who've been at it for 500 years, right, or 400 years, or the Palestinians and the Israelis or the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croats or you name it, it's possible to start a reconciliation. And it might take several generations in Rwanda or Cambodia. And it's not even really started to un unravel with Palestine and Israel yet. And it might take 50 years in Ireland, but it's possible. People can say, it stops with me. I will not retaliate. We've all suffered enough. And whether it's there in the n nations or whether it is a woman coming in, as she did to see me in the middle of a terrible divorce, messy, you know, and custody battle and all the stuff around money and being attacked very much by her ex-husband um, and saying, um, I will not speak ill of him to our children and I will not bequeath a legacy of hatred to the next generation. I simply will not do it. It will stop with me no matter what happens. Even if I lose, it will stop with me. And you can feel the bravery and the integrity of it. So forgiveness is the first gift that he asks for. And it clears your heart so that you can live anew. Um, it's often one of the things that one does at the end of life, what matters. And you find that offering and extending forgiveness. And, I think about how many times people come on retreat. This man who came on a retreat and started to weep partway through. He was a physical therapist who lived in Ohio and he loved animals. And he would come in and he just seemed to shrink every day and more and more frightened and more and more grief. And finally I said, what is the story? And the short version of the story is that he lived on a farm outside of town and when um, there were animals that people in town didn't want, especially dogs, extra ones, they would just dump them at the gate of his farm. And his father would have him shoot the dogs. From when he was, said, when I was eight till when I was 13, I had to shoot, you know, a couple of dozen dogs. And I love animals. And they just weighed on his soul. And he ended up doing a whole long ritual of creating this altar in the desert and and offering, he said, I have to do a forgiveness and made a vow to spend, uh, you know, one day a month at the humane shelter there working with animals. And he said he just had to clear himself so that he could ask forgiveness, even though he was forced to do it. Um, but we all have things that we need to forgive ourselves for or forgive others. And one of the really remarkable um, if, uh, stories. If you go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, there are all these letters that people leave and things. And there was a letter and a picture. Dear sir, for 22 years I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day. We faced one another on the trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't kill me, I don't know. You stared at me so long holding your AK-47 and yet you would not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was just reacting as a soldier. So many times over the years I've stared at this picture of you and your daughter. And each time my heart and guts burn with the pain of guilt for I have two daughters now myself. And I realize you were a brave soldier defending your homeland. And above all else, I can respect the importance that life held for you. 
I suppose that is why you did not fire and I am still alive. And yet now, 22 years later, it is time for me to continue my life process and release my pain and guilt. I only ask one thing, forgive me, please forgive me. And then the man who wrote that note, Richard Luttrell, later took a trip to Hanoi, brought the picture where they could find from the image which regiment he was from, and he went to the village and found the son and daughter of this man that he had killed and brought the picture back to them. Ask their forgiveness explained what had happened, showed them pictures of his own children. And they said it was all written up and they said, it's as if their father's spirit was somehow reborn in this man, Richard, who came back to them and they could feel the blessing of their father in his return. It's such a powerful thing to be able to forgive and it means so much. And of course you have to do it over and over again. There's that other little piece. Um, but it liberates the heart. It's the only thing, otherwise the Irish and Protestants and Catholics just keep doing it for generations, or we do in our families. So this was the first blessing that Nachiketa got. And um, as the Zen poet Ryokan said, oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. It brought the spirit of compassion that allowed Nachiketa to move on and be freer. Second wish, all right, now I have forgiveness. What else do I ask for? The second wish he asked for was fire. He said, I want to be really alive. I don't want to go through this life halfway. Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells and call out to the gods, but watch out because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So what Nachiketa said is, I don't want to live a halfway life. I want the courage or the fire, the, the bravery, whatever word you want to talk about it. I want the care or the love to live this life really Fully, no matter what's given to me. And that's the choice when you see Viktor Frankl come out of the concentration camps and say, we who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few, few in number, but their very existence proves the final freedom of human spirit the freedom to choose your spirit no matter what the circumstances. So Yitzhak Perlman, who's one of the greatest musician violinists in the world, um, was also uh, um, suffered from um, polio as a, as a young boy in the 1950s before the vaccine. And so he, he walks with leg braces, not so easily, but he plays a mean violin. Uh, actually, he plays a Stradivarius violin, to be more accurate. Um, quite extraordinary. Um, but anyway, um, to do his performance, he has to get up on stage with his crutches and makes this slow entrance and sits down and unclasps his leg braces and pulls out this extraordinary violin. He had a concert in New York at Lincoln Center um, and on this occasion, partway through his solo violin piece, one of the violin strings broke. He could have stopped, maybe limped across stage or gotten somebody to bring him another string. Um, and everybody heard it. You could hear the string snap. What's, what's he going to do? He paused for a moment. He signaled for the conductor to begin again and continued to play the violin concerto on the three remaining strings. All the artistry and all the care that he had in a lifetime, he just said, I'm going to play this thing. And he played, reconfigured the whole piece of music so that it could be played in that way. 
And when he finished, there was an awed silence and this huge outburst of applause. <sighs> he sighed, he wiped the sweat from his brow, and then he spoke in a quiet, like almost reverent tone. He said, you know, sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. And this is really what Nachiketa asks, you know, that we have the limitations of our life. And each of you do physical limitations or mental limitations or financial or the kinds of limitations that you do because that's part of what incarnation is. It's, it's um, limitation. It is, isn't it? But what kind of music do you make with it? And for Nachiketa, he said, I want to have the spirit. It's like Aung San Suu Kyi, who's out of 17 years of house arrest this last year from Burma, being in her place, um, un, uh, allowed to leave Burma. She could have left if she wanted, but she would never have been allowed back in the country. Um, she didn't go even when her husband was dying of cancer. Her children graduated from university because she knew they would never let her back in. And she had won this election 20 years ago, and then it was taken by the military away, this quite horrible military dictatorship. And she said, I will not leave, and I will not hate you, but I will not go. And she stayed for all those years in this house. And when I was in Burma, I remember riding in a taxi a few years ago, and no one ever talks about her because it was too dangerous and there's spies everywhere and people got thrown in prison who were allied with her in any way. But I, this taxi I was in had an Obama bumper sticker on it and I thought this guy might be cool. And nobody else was, you know, it was just me and him and I said, all right, I need to ask you a question. We talked about Obama a little bit. Obama, he liked Obama. And I said, people don't talk about Aung San Suu Kyi. I want to ask you, and his eyes got wide, it's like, you know, is it safe? And I said, it's okay, it's really, it's safe, I promise. I said, but, but what I want to know is, has she been forgotten? Because no one talks about her. And we stopped at a red light and he turned around and he said, never here, put his hand over his mouth, always here. Always here. And so here is this person who said, I will not go away and I will not hate you. And she carried the light of freedom, democracy, vision of what was possible for 50 million Burmese people without saying a word. So this is what Nachi Keita asked. May I live with that kind of fullness? And it's what you learn in some way as you meditate. It's not just that you learn to, you know, sit and follow your breath. But this from a woman who died of cancer a couple of years ago. My days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts for every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch was a training for kindness a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now even as I face my death. And so Nachiketa wanted that kind of courage to face his life and live it fully. And that was granted to him. So he gets one more wish, one more boon. What would you ask? Lord Yama says, all right, those were good ones, forgiveness and fire, a fullness of life. What is your third wish? And Nachiketa says, I wish for immortality. Well, there's a wish for you. And look who he's talking to, right? Lord Yama. And Lord Yama says, are you sure? You know, this is your last wish. Look at what you could have and displays in Nachiketa's vision, maidens, sense pleasures, chariots, the best Ferrari of the day, you know, six amazing steeds in a golden chariot or whatever it was, castles, kingdoms, grandchildren, 
you know, every possible temptation. You have your temptations, you know you do. I do, right? Whatever it is that you could imagine, and, and Lord Yama says, you could have any of this stuff. You sure that immortality is really what you want? Look at what you could have. And Natiketa says, well, I have a question for you. Will not all these things that you've shown me soon enough return to your domain? And Lord Yama says, uh, yeah, actually, that's true. <laughs> They're temporal. They're not going to last that long, in fact. And Nachiketa said, I thought so. So he says, so I renew my request. I wish for immortality. And being a wise benefactor, Lord Yama says, I cannot grant it to you directly, but I will give it to you in this form. I have a gift to give you. And so what he does is he goes and he comes back and he offers to Nachiketa a mirror. And he says, I offer you this mirror and say to you, inquire as you look into this mirror, who am I really? And you will discover immortality. Now, of course, this sounds a little bit silly in a certain way, but it is the question of your life. Who are you? Who was born into this amazing physical incarnate body that you have with certain hair coloring that some of you change every few months, you know, and little patches of fur, as I like to talk about, the hole in one end where you stuff dead plants and animals regularly and wiggle it around and stuff. How did you get in there and who are you, right? When you look in the mirror, you notice that you've aged but you don't necessarily feel older, right? We talk about this all the time here. And you know why that is? Because it's only your body that's gotten older. And as you look in the mirror and say, hmm, you know, sagging here, wrinkled there, losing more fur there, whatever it is, there, there is that sense that who you are is the witness to this body. You are actually the consciousness, the awareness that's saying, hmm, this incarnation, let's see, it's kind of used up some of its time, hasn't it? And it's drooping, or whatever it's doing, you know, how it does that. As Wes Nisker, who teaches here, describes aging, he says, the hard parts get soft and the soft parts get hard. <laughs> but it's true. All right, so that's the body, but as you look in the mirror, there is this knowing that that's not who you are. It's getting older, but the awareness itself is outside of time. That's why it doesn't feel older. It says, wow, this is an amazing thing. And you'll see when you get close to death or when you die, very likely, you'll have to see, you let me know. Um, but it's very possible that as you die, you'll say, wow, that was an amazing incarnation, wasn't it? You know, that there is a place of witnessing consciousness, of loving awareness that is who you really are, that's independent of the role or identity or gender or race or all the things that you take as incarnation, that's just temporary. And so what Nachiketa was invited to do was to inquire, who am I really? This is the great spiritual question. And someone went to see the Buddha, a man named Mogarajan, and said, how is it possible to live and not be seen by the king of death? Same kind of question. You're a Buddha, right? And the Buddha said, yes. He said, then I have this really difficult question. How can I live so that I will not be seen by the king of death, wanting immortality? And the Buddha replied, for one who abides, not grasping anything is me or mine, not this body is me or mine, not these feelings is me or mine, not these thoughts is me or mine. For one who abides not taking this small sense of self to be who I am, not holding on to anything in this way, such a person will not be seen by the king of death. So we construct our identities and we need them and they're useful. You know, you need to drive on the right-hand side of the street, and you need to remember your social security number and all of those things, but it's not who you are. Who you are is that spark of life and light 
that's behind these eyes that was there before you were born that is spirit. And this was the invitation of the mirror that was given to Nachiketa. I remember somebody asking my teacher, Nisargadot, well, you know, you're an old man, aren't you afraid to die? And he said, you take me to be this meat body, this food body, all of the japatis and curries that I've eaten, you think that's who I am? I beg your pardon, that's an insult. You think yourself to be the senses and the body and the things you touch, and they suggest to myself, I'm neither perceivable nor describable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this I am. You identify with everything, these thoughts, these views, this body, these feelings, and take them to be yourself. For me, this is impossible. I know this is not who I am. Wisdom sees I am nothing. Love sees I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. And I remember talking to Ramdas about this. And he talks, he does in that marvelous film of um, Fierce Grace, where he said, I've had so many incarnations even in this life. You know, I was a psychologist for a while and then I became a college professor at Stanford and then at Harvard. Here I am, this professor and psychologist. And, and then I took LSD and got kicked out of Harvard and I became you know, Richard Alpert, the LSD guru, and I died being a professor and I got born into this whole new turn on, tune in and drop out thing for a long time. And then I went to India and I found my guru and I realized that um, it wasn't about drugs. It was something, the game of awakening was so much bigger than that. And I became Baba Ramdas with the beads and the, you know, the white robe and I became the guru myself for a while. But then, after a while, that got old, and I realized I had to serve. My guru said, feed people, love them. So we started Seva Foundation, and I let go of all that guru stuff, and instead we built eye hospitals and healing centers around the world, and we did surgery for two and a half million people restoring their sight, and clinics all over. And I became very good at that, he said, and I was raising money and I had all these wealthy friends and I would drive my sports car around and play the cello and play golf and having a really good life. And then I had a stroke. And I couldn't hold my cello and I couldn't drive and I couldn't play golf anymore. And I became a disabled person in a disabled person's body where people have to pick me up and put me in bed and take me out and wipe my bottom. And I died to being that man who was playing golf and driving around so successfully. And now I'm reborn in this disabled body. He said, I've had so many lives. And yet he said, that's what you have to do. You have to take the curriculum that's given to you and use it to grow wise. So who are you really? This is the question that Nachiketa was given. The question, in another way, is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. That you know this, you can sense that there's something much bigger than your small worries and fears and ideas. And even when someone dies, and maybe I will honor and offer the blessings of this talks to Leonardo Perel, who was a member of the community who died in an accident a couple of weeks ago. Um, in some ways there's less of them because you can't speak with them directly in their body and touch them and smell them. You don't have that human contact. And yet in certain other ways there's more of them because where you can go to Muir Woods and talk to him now, and you can go to the ocean and he'll be there with you if you knew him. And actually he's there for you wherever you are. Um, isn't incarnation amazing? And so we take it to be limited, and it's true, but that's only part of the story. There is a secret beauty, to use Thomas Merton's phrase, that's shining 
in the eyes of everyone you meet that's not their small sense of self at all, that's who they really are. And in India, when you meet someone, you put your hands together, you say namaste, I honor the divine in you, I honor that spark of who you really are. Instead of saying, you know, um, what do you do in India? It used to be anyway. The question would be more like, you know, what form of God do you worship? It's an interesting one, you know, or what do you love? In America, it's what do you do? But this is who are you really in there? So Nachiketa got his three wishes, but then there's one more thing to finish up in a few minutes. Because he sat there and he awakened in a silence to the vast dance of birth and death and realized that he was also the witness to it all. That he was the loving awareness that is timeless to which sounds and sights and years of life and experiences come and go but that there was some place in him that was unborn and undying. Zen masters write their little poems at the end of life, their death poems. If you're really a good Zen master, you write it on your last day, you know, figure out the last minutes. Though I should live to be a hundred, the same world, the same cherry blossoms, says one. Empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming and going, two simple happenings that got entangled. These little kind of poems, okay, here it was a great dance, and now it's done. And of course we get frightened, and I don't want to lose, and I'm attached, but the fact is that all the time you're being born and dying. Every breakfast you get a new life. You might as well practice it and accept it, because it's how it is. And so Nachiketa understood this. And then the question is, how does he get back from the land of death? How does he return? There he is sitting, aware of the vastness of time and space and the great dance, given the gift of immortality. And it turns out that he doesn't have to return in the way that you understand, because the realization comes to him that not one step leads away. Black Elk the great Sioux, Ogallala Sioux medicine man, went up on Harney Peak, this mountain in the Black Hills, and had an extraordinary vision or revelation that made him this sacred holder of the tradition of his people. And he said, there I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole circle of the world. And as I stood there, I saw more than I can tell and understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shape of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together as one being. And I saw the sacred circle of my people was one of the many circles, wide as daylight and starlight, of all peoples and all creatures. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of the same mother and father. And I saw that it was holy, but you must understand and remember that anywhere that you are is the place where this tree, flowering tree grows. Anywhere is the center of the world and anywhere is holy ground. And when Nachiketa stopped after forgiveness, and fire, or living fully, being completely present, and realizing that he was living now the dance of life from this place of loving awareness, open, spacious, timeless. Then he opened his eyes again and realized there he was in the green springtime fields of India, um, under the tree where he had sat looking to face his own death, and that he'd been blessed by these visions and understandings and that what he was looking for was who he was. And he got up from that seat with a kind of love in his heart and an innocence and a freedom now unafraid to face 
all the changes of life, um, and went back to find his father and his family. I never asked for, what, for understanding, Mary Oliver says. I asked for wonder. And Gandhi, who says, I believe in the essential unity of all life. I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains, and that if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. And so somehow in this initiatory process of going through his difficulties, as you go through your own, Nachiketa's heart grew wise. His vision grew timeless. His forgiveness grew. His courage blossomed. And he was able to go and live his life as a being who had an immense freedom of heart and could bless all that he touched. And so you've listened and you've gone on the journey with Nachiketa, and he's now in you, in your own way and in your own language and in your own images, and you get to carry his blessings as your own. So let's sit for a moment. And may you carry the spirit of forgiveness and the fire of courage to live fully and the loving awareness that is timeless, that is who you really are. May you carry these gifts and boons as Nachiketa does back from here to bless all that you touch. Thank you for your kind attention. And um, it's a Pleasure to tell stories, <laughs> bedtime stories. So drive politely out there. It's crowded um, and dark. It's a beautiful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.